And welcome to the Sermon on the Mount study, 12 weeks, actually 11 weeks, because we took, um, we took one last week to go over our uh, exciting missions efforts and opportunities this past summer. So I want to invite you to turn with me in Matthew to chapter 5 as we get started, and I'll offer just a few words by way of introduction. I have, uh, I told my wife I have two versions of my notes for this introductory teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. I have the version that is finished on time and the version that upsets the nursery workers. <laughs> so, we're going to do the, the more condensed version tonight, and if you would like access to my notes that have more background context information, um, then just let me know, and I'll be sure to send that to you, and you can read up on that. Some of it may be sprinkled in throughout the series, but... There's a bit of background context um, that we just won't be able to get into tonight, but there just won't be time. So, let's dive in. Let's start um, with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word and for our time together this evening in it. Thank you for the discipleship groups that are happening downstairs and throughout the campus, for the class happening next door, preparing uh, both the, the middle and the older aged demographic, preparing them to finish well, to finish strong, that is, to be able to give to you in their retirement years in ways that are uniquely um, prepared for. And so we pray you'd bless those classes, those efforts, those groups that are happening, even as we ask that you would lead and guide our time in your word this evening in this famous Sermon on the Mount. We love you and we trust you. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. Well, again, Matthew chapter 5 begins. Let's just read these opening 12 verses by way of introduction, and then we'll dive in. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Sermon on the Mount, a famous portion of Scripture, we should not assume that one time Jesus preached one excellent sermon. And his followers, namely the disciples, uh, intently listened that one time and wrote down every word he said. Rather, <clears throat> we need to assume that the Sermon on the Mount, as it is recorded in Matthew 5 through 7, is a 
collection of the most commonly preached sermons or teachings of Jesus. If you will, over and over again, as Jesus traveled from town to town, place to place, meeting after meeting, over the course of the three years, especially that which the disciples spent with him, namely the twelve, that these these words, these phrases, these portions, these chunks were so um, often repeated and heard by the disciples that Matthew in his accounting of the life of Jesus and his ministry, he assembled them into one sermon recorded in this way. That's not to say that we should assume Jesus never sat down with a crowd of disciples and preached this word for word from chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 7, the last verse. We, we shouldn't assume that never happened. We simply must recognize that this would have been his consistent teaching on the life of those who are in or belonging to his kingdom. Uh, good evidence to that can be found in Luke. Luke's gospel has a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost verbatim, word for word, but it's only a portion, right? And then there's, you know, story, if you will, narrative on either side. So that's the first thing by way of introduction. It's not to diminish it at all, or to, to diminish the moment that verse 1 sets up, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to preach what is considered to be the greatest sermon of all time, if you will. So that's the first thing. The second thing, by way of introduction, as you can see there on the screens, the first thing we'll cover is something of a series and evening introduction. Now, this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is, is a description of the lifestyle of those who belong to Jesus' kingdom. It is not a recipe for salvation. It is, if you will, the results of salvation. The entire thing, the whole sermon, begins with the Beatitudes. And, of course, if you know anything about you know, literature or communication, how you begin is meant to be a springboard for what comes next. So it certainly matters that the first thing recorded is this list, the Beatitudes. It begins because that's the summary. The summary of the lifestyle of those who belong to the kingdom of God. If you will, everything that comes after it is kind of like detailed explanation, but it's all summarized in this first installment, the Beatitudes. Finally, the first Beatitude, the first statement of blessing, is a blessing on the poor in spirit. And so as the Beatitudes are the foundation of the sermon, so too the poor in spirit are the foundation of the Beatitudes. So if you want to reverse engineer that and draw a picture in your mind or even on your notes, you would draw something like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the foundations of the house. The house being the man or woman of God. The Beatitudes, then, are the summary. They are the structure itself, the individual. The Sermon on the Mount as a whole, 5 through 7, are, if you will, all of the activity that happens inside the house. It's the rearing of children and sending them out in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's being hospitable and welcoming where your home is a hub of evangelism and, again, hospitality. It's being a light 
a beacon, a fixed structure in a world of darkness. It's a firm place, not washed away by the waves or run down by the winds of life, but it's solid. It's not going anywhere, right? If you can think of any and every metaphor of the activity of a house, including the integrity of the man himself or woman herself that the house represents, that is, if you will, all that activity is the sermon. So beyond a brief series intro, let's talk about tonight, the introduction for this evening. Continuing under the first subheading, if you're taking notes, the Beatitudes are often treated as a moral framework delivered by Jesus, whereby if the hearer lives by them, he will find himself approved by God on the day of judgment. It's how they're often treated. Do this, and when you get to the judgment seat, the judgment day, God will say, oh, you did pretty good, come on in. That is a classic Orthodox Jewish version of, if you will, something like the Beatitudes. It's certainly the, the, the moral relativist who thinks, I'm not as bad as that guy, so God will let me in, right? After all, you know, I'm, I'm you know, peaceful and I'm merciful and, you know, The fact of the matter is that the Beatitudes do not admit a soul into eternal peace by their adherence. Rather, they outline the characteristics of the life genuinely marked by the grace of Jesus Christ. The Beatitudes outline the characteristics of the life genuinely marked by the grace of Jesus Christ. Luther puts it this way, Christ is saying nothing in these verses about how we become Christians, only about the works and the fruit that no one can do unless he is already a Christian and in a state of grace. And of course, this is teed up perfectly by verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so while it should be expected that there would be a mixed multitude in and among this crowd, including a, a, a list of influencers that are in my expanded version of the notes for tonight, what we recognize is that the, the Sermon on the Mount is delivered to his followers, to those, if you will, who are repentant. Jesus began in chapter 4, just a few verses before this, saying, repent. The repentant turn from their course of life and follow him to the mountain where he tells them what the repentant life looks like. You follow me? All right. Well, we won't belabor that point because again, time. John Stott writes a book called A Call to a Christian Counterculture. And he says this, the followers of Jesus are to be different, different from both the nominal church and the secular world, different from both the religious and the irreligious. Continuing, the Sermon on the Mount is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. Here is a Christian value system ethical standard, religious devotion, attitude toward money, ambition, lifestyle, and relationships, all of which are totally at variance with those of the non-Christian world. And this Christian counterculture is the life of the kingdom of God, a fully human life indeed, but lived out under divine rule. Well, again, I mean, essentially, friends, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about 
in the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically beginning with the Beatitudes, the description of the one who is holy and completely unlike your unredeemed neighbor. Well, without belaboring the introduction, I again invite you to request my notes for a further expanded introduction to this evening's teaching and to the sermon as a whole. For tonight, for right now, let's jump to number two, where we'll consider these Beatitudes as revolutionary promises. Revolutionary promises. Here we have eight. It looks like nine because there are nine blesseds, but it's actually eight. Um, Verses 11 and 12 are, in essence, an expanded explanation of verse 10. So we'll talk about that when we get there. But again, eight revolutionary promises. And he begins here where the gospel begins. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is poor in spirit is certainly not a call to uh, physical uh, destitution. As if to say, to have less is to be more holy than to have more. Jesus certainly taught at various points in times about the danger of being given over to the pursuit of wealth. Solomon talked about the vanity of it, right? Jesus said it's harder for a a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, you know. But that's not the topic at hand here. Poor in spirit is not the same thing as poor in material wealth. To be poor in spirit is to know your depravity and to know your need for a savior. To know your depravity and to know your need of a savior. It is as Alistair calls it, those who recognize their spiritual poverty. It is the beginning of the gospel. You are at war with God. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, alienated from God, at war with God, walking, if you will, marching to the beat of the drum as a foot soldier in the army of Satan. You were as far from being a follower and an adherent of Jesus as you possibly could be. It is why I I don't consider myself a Calvinist. I don't like any of the labels. I don't want to be an anythingist. Um, Just Jesus, that's enough, you know. I mean, Paul even said it, you know, some are of Apollos and some are of Paul and some are of this. It's like, we're all just under the one shepherd, Jesus. Let's settle down. I'm glad, Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize you guys because then you'd all be saying you're, you're, you're Paulians instead of that you're just Christians. You see, we get, it's obvious we get fixated with these labels. That said, the five points of Calvinism begin with the T in TULIP, the acronym, um, which total depravity. And it's a good and right and necessary starting point. It is where the Beatitudes begin. Poor in spirit, you know you are depraved. You know you are spiritually impoverished. You are aware, you have been made aware by the Spirit of God that you are a dead man or woman floating face down in the ocean of life. You are not seeking, you are not longing, you are not hoping, you are not wishing. You are spiritually dead. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with him in Christ Jesus. But the starting point is, as Jesus began his, his public ministry, repent, turn. You are walking in opposition to God 
turn the opposite way. You are dead, be made alive. It's the starting point. It's why I'm always using this phrase, the gospel is confrontation. We have to be okay with confrontation. We've got to do it right, but we've got to be okay with it. Because the most confrontational thing we will ever say to our neighbor or our coworker or our child or our mother who we love, who is apart from God and on the road to destruction, is a confrontational statement. It says, you are spiritually impoverished and desperately in need. Do you see this? You're at war with God. It's confrontation. It's not comfort. Those of, we have a lot of people who have a medical background and expertise here at our church. This is like the safest place to have a medical episode, by the way. <laughs> We've got like nurses and doctors and PAs and defibrillators, yeah, in case that becomes necessary. But like when, when someone is marched or wheeled, I should say, into the ER and they're bleeding out from a major artery, the doctor is not concerned about speaking words of comfort to them, words of assurance to them. Hey, you know what? I know you're bleeding profusely, but I think you're going to be okay. What do they do? They grab, they... Sometimes, if necessary, they smack them, you know what I mean? Knock them out, give them some meds, knock them out, hold them down, strap them down. I don't care about their comfort. I care about their life. Now, once it's all said and done, we stop the bleeding. Now we get a little bedside manner, perhaps, a little bit of words of comfort. Listen, we stopped the bleeding. That's the most comforting words you could ever hear, right? We intervened. You fought us because you're stupid, right? But we intervened, and we saved your life. This is the point of the blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are aware that they are on the road to destruction Conversely, cursed are they who think they can live up to the standard of God to a degree that God will accept them on the basis of their own merit. It is a curse to tell someone, live rightly, live well, live morally, live ethically, and perhaps when you get to the judgment seat that your good will outweigh your bad. That is a curse and a deception, and it's one that many, many millions are living under even to today. Those who know they are in need of a Savior are those who cry out, have mercy on me, I can't do it. You see? And to them is given the privilege of being part of the kingdom of God, now and for eternity. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By this understanding, we can see how this opening statement is the foundation for the rest. How are you to be compelled to be meek or merciful or a peacemaker or so on if you have not first been transformed in the depths of your heart by crying out for mercy from a God who remakes us? It's a doomed effort. So it's the foundation. Without this desperation of soul for rescue from the sin that ensnares us, none of the rest is impossible, at least not to a completely pure degree that would earn the man or woman a place dwelling among God's absolute and penetrating perfection. See, we can do good things. In fact, there are a lot of moral people who are far, far from God today. They're generous, charitable, often kind, thoughtful, they live lives that are morally, quote-unquote, good. But they cannot live perfect lives. And, and see, this is what's so fascinating about the whole episode where Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God says, I can't show you my face, but I can show you my backside. And in fact, I'll hide you behind my hand. And the idea here is, is just that simply that, that Moses is a sinner. Moses is a murderer. 
But Moses is also a devoted family man. He's a good guy. He made some mistakes when he was younger, but he's lived 40 years as a faithful husband and father, a good man to his wife, a good man to his father-in-law. And God said to Moses, if I show you my glory, if I, if you will, if I piercingly gaze at you, my holiness will obliterate you. See, that's a good man. That's a good man. But the penetrating, all-knowing gaze of God sees through any attempts at a false morality or a false perfection. I'm pretty good, and we put on the clothing of pretty good. I'm not that bad. I cut my grass, and I raise my kids, and I show up at work on time. I'm not like that guy. I'm not like that woman. I'm pretty good. And the penetrating gaze of God sees right through that down to the motive of the heart that is always mixed. It's always tainted with our sin nature. We can never do anything absolutely with pure motive and intent. With it to, to absolute perfection. There will always be some twinge, you know, of the stain of our sin nature. And apart from Christ, we will stand before God and his piercing gaze will see right down to that inkling of selfish motive that taints our attempts at living a moral life. And that gaze would obliterate us like he would of Moses. The one who is poor in spirit is more sensitive to the enormity of our sin, more sensitive to the practice of sin, and therefore becoming more grateful to God for the wonder of his mercy and grace through Christ. What is it, friends, that keeps people we know and love from responding to the gospel? It's pride. It's an erroneous notion that their lives, though not perfect, are certainly good enough to warrant reasonable understanding from a fair and reasonable God. But the Bible doesn't say God's fair, fair, fair. It says he's holy, holy, holy. He is not like us. His expectations are absolute perfection. Every moment, every second, every nanosecond, every ambition. And unless we are foolish enough to believe that we can achieve that, we will become aware of our desperate need for mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they who know they are depraved and in desperate need of a Savior. For it is through the acknowledgement that I am in utter and absolute need of one who would wipe my slate clean. I can't do it. I can't live up to the expectation. The gift then that is given is the kingdom of heaven. Such a ridiculous invitation. Just humbly acknowledge that, that you're a sinner. Just humble yourself before the Lord. And just say, I need mercy. You're perfect, I'm not. I'm aware of that. And you're saying the entrance fee to heaven and eternal peace with God is absolute perfection. I can't do it. So just humble yourself before the Lord and say, I can't do it. And to you is granted the kingdom of heaven? Entrance? Peace? It's a ridiculous offer. Even more ridiculous those who scoff at it. Well, you can see now why I could spend one evening on each of the Beatitudes. But for the sake of our season together this fall on Wednesday nights, let's move on Pick up the pace, uh, just a skosh. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Is this about experiencing loss and grief? Losing a dog, losing a mom, losing a loved one, losing a job, having your life ripped inside out, upside down? No. This is the sorrow of repentance. Only those who mourn over their sins are forgiven. And by God's forgiveness are comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. Luther says it this way, the Christian's entire life is a continuous act of repentance and contrition. Repentance is a process, it's a way of life, a new way of walking, not a momentary decision whereby once the decision is made, we are free and clear to relax. Okay, I repented, I can chill now and get on with my life. No, Paul Washer calls that the idolatry of decisionism. Listen to this, the difference between a moment of remorse and genuine Christian repentance. Ready? Men think they are going to heaven because they have judged the sincerity of their own decision. Again, this is Paul Washer. When Paul came to the church in Corinth, he did not say to them, look, you're not living like Christians, so let's go back to that one moment in your life when you prayed those magic words, that one prayer, and let's see if you were sincere. No. He said, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. I want you to know, friends, again, continuing with Washer's words, salvation is by faith alone. It is a work of God. It is grace upon grace upon grace. But the evidence of conversion is not just your examination of your sincerity at the moment of your conversion. It is the ongoing fruit in your life. Repentance is a continuous act. This is the Christian life of being more sensitive to sin, more sensitive. See, that's the thing. The, it's the maturing Christian, it's the growing Christian who mourns their sin and is regularly cut to the heart and almost begins to wonder, how long will this go on for? I thought as I walked with the Lord and developed habits and spent more time in his word and in prayer that, that, that as my, my habits and my life changed, my words became purified and my interaction with my children was modified and, and obviously blessed. It's not what it was before. And yet in the inner man, I am still just continually wrecked what's going on. I thought it would get sweeter, and in many ways it has, but I'm just, again, it's like my sin is staring at me in the face. What's going on? See, the growing Christian is growing in sensitivity to our sin. And we are compelled again and again, not to get saved every day, but to confess before the Lord and to beg for the Lord's help and his mercy to eradicate these thoughts, these actions, these impulses from our mouths and minds and hearts. Blessed are those who mourn their sin. They'll be comforted. The truly repentant mourn their sin daily, take up their cross, laying their lives down to Jesus at his feet daily and are comforted by the blood of Jesus shed for us daily. See, even as we grow in our sensitivity to sin, we also grow in our gratitude and our appreciation for the cross. There's a great scene in uh, one of the Chronicles of Narnia books where the kids the kids had met Aslan. Aslan is this giant lion. It's a metaphor for God, God the Father. And, well, he also typifies Jesus, so we'll just say the triune God. They had met him, and they returned to their home world like in the real world. And then in the next book, they, they came back, 
and they were looking for Aslan, and they couldn't find him, but eventually he appears to them, and the one youngest says, Aslan, you, you've gotten bigger. And he says, no, I, I haven't changed. But as you grew, I grew to you. Right? I grew in your eyes as you grew up. And that's it. It's like the cross that is kind of small and behind me. It is everything to us at our moment of salvation, the blood of Christ shed for us. But 20 years later, the cross doesn't become a distant memory from a moment of conversion. The cross looms larger and larger, ever more so every day. We're comforted by it. It's grander and grander as we mourn our sin and become increasingly sensitive to it. Blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, verse 5. They shall inherit the earth. Let's see if we can do this in 10 minutes. Meekness is gentleness of spirit, tenderness and heart. But it's not sweetness and it's not weakness. Meekness is a tough one. It's very specific. Gentle in spirit, tender in heart, but not weak and not sweet. It's power under control. It's not the temperament of sweetness. You can be sweet without Jesus. There's plenty of sweet southern bells that don't have Jesus. I declare, you know. Meekness is a choice not to give in to our human sinful proclivity to selfish, violent, or vindictive attitudes and actions. A person can be really sweet one minute and frighteningly cutting the next. Meekness is courage and strength and conviction expressed gently through actions and interactions with others. A sweet person can gin up sweetness, but only the spirit in you can manufacture meekness that restrains the inner temperament, not to mention the outpouring of the mouth. The meek are also humble. They are astonished at compliments of wisdom or maturity or insight. It's not false humility like, oh, no, no, I'm not, but you really think, yes, I am. (laughs) No, it's a self-awareness that the only thing good in me is Christ made manifest. Ultimately, meekness is defined at the cross, where Jesus had the power to bring himself down from the cross, prove his detractors wrong, vindicate himself in the eyes of all who were present in first century Jerusalem. Oh, what a story it would have been. Right? Man gave himself up to be crucified. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was spat upon, humiliated, nailed to a cross. And just before we thought he was going to die, he just restored his own flesh and floated down from the cross and said, I told you so, you bunch of jerks, right? Oh, what a story it would have been. He came down from the cross. And 2,000 years later, we're reading about this man who came down from the cross. But had he not died, we would have no hope. And so meekness held him to the cross more interested in submission to the Father than in hasty vindication. And this is where we struggle. We want to be vindicated. We want to vindicate ourselves. But meekness restrains the tongue. And the reward, they inherit the earth, as Jesus did As he expressed in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Meekness held him to the cross, and he was rewarded with the earth. And by him and through him, we inherit what he earned. See? Blessed are the meek, 
they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is evidence that we are in the kingdom. No hunger for righteousness, contentment in habitual sin, no certainty that you are a member of the kingdom. Paul Washer asks simply, when was the last time you wept over your own sin? Because you're hungering for righteousness and yet you're experiencing the struggle. Alistair says, God is a forgiving God, so I'm going to sin and he'll forgive me. And then once he's forgiven me, I can move on. He's painting the picture of a man who is not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. God's a forgiving God. I'll sin, he'll forgive me. Once he's forgiven me, I can move on. My answer to that man, Alistair says, is you have one foot on a banana peel and the other is teetering on the brink of hell. You see? No, no desire, no hunger, no thirst for righteousness? There's no hunger. If a baby, if a baby is born and it's not hungry, it won't latch on. It won't yearn for the bottle. It won't latch on to his mother. And he'll die, you see. The reward is interesting, isn't it? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hunger for righteousness, you'll be satisfied. The picture is such that Jesus knows what we're doing when we pursue or give in to sinful temptation. We're looking for some sort of satisfaction. Sexual perversion is the easiest to relate to this, but it's everything. Gluttony, we're seeking to satisfy our mouth cravings, but in the end, we feel full, full of regret, but not satisfied, right? When someone makes us angry and we're tempted to lash out and we give in, thinking that by cutting that person down with harsh and demeaning words or hurtling reminders of their past imperfections at them like spears, we think in that moment that that reaction will satisfy, but it doesn't. It doesn't last. It feels good. It tastes good for a moment, but it's not satisfying, at least not for the one who is in the kingdom of Jesus. No. Giving into that temptation, into that temptation leaves us feeling hollow and empty and ashamed and desperate to restore the relationship that we just assaulted. But those who are hungry for righteousness, hungry to obey God's word, hungry to walk in his ways, the satisfaction of humble obedience is sweet like honey. I even shortened my notes and we're out of time. Let's see what we can do. We got two minutes. <laughs> Verse seven, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Those who are conscious of being the unworthy recipients of God's mercy will reflect that mercy in their dealings with others. Right? That's why Jesus said, I tell you, this woman's sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. See, what you receive, you can then pour out. You've been forgiven much, you can love very much. And what is love but informing those who are desperate and desperately in need of God's mercy to let them know? You tell them you need God's mercy. That is receiving and being merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. A, a, to be pure in heart is not to have a pure heart. If you're in Christ, you are given a new heart. So what is it to be pure in heart as a mode of operation as a member of the kingdom? It means to be undivided. Like James in chapter one, he says, don't be double-minded and unstable. 
The result is you'll see God. What does that mean? Well, God becomes visible to us when we are pure or single-minded of heart, not one day seeking him and the next day ignoring him, not one day crying out when we're in need, when, when life is hard, and then when things settle down, we go back to ignoring him. That's being double-minded. It's being impure of heart, what the word means. It's, it's the same word that we get the word catharsis from, like something was a cathartic experience. You'll never see God so long as that's the nature of your relationship with him. One day here, the next day ignore. Life is hard, I'm sad. Okay, life is good, I'm gonna go on vacation. You'll never see God. You'll never become familiar with his voice or his face. But be single-minded and you'll see him. Blessed are the peacemakers. See, once again, these things revolve around the one who has been reconciled. What is a peacemaker but one who invites others to experience the peace that they have with God? But you can't offer the peace that you don't have. And then finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom. And again, verses 11 12 expand on that idea from verse 10. I know, Don, I'm sorry. Give me two more. Sorry, Don. I even cut it short. I cut a bunch of stuff out. Persecution is not something that the American church is uh, terribly familiar with, apart from reading about it happening in other countries. But if you uphold God's standard and refuse to compromise in the face of persecution, in the face of opposition, there is a blessing reserved. A boss that ridicules, uh, a government that persecutes, a tyrant who tortures and executes. Uh, Christians around the world are, pu- are persecuted for righteousness' sake every day. And so let us be reminded of a couple of things. Number one, being laughed at or mocked in popular culture is not persecution. So don't equate the two. Do not give in to the notion that just because Christians in America are mocked by politicians who say that we are, quote, deplorables clinging to God and guns. Do not equate that with the true suffering for your faith. That might not be pleasant, but it should come as no surprise. So that's the first thing. Second thing is you do need to be prepared for the very real potential of government-sanctioned, economically enforced, unjust, and cruel persecution. All because you refuse to bow down to the idols of, let's just say, transgenderism, or COVID lockdowns, or climate hysteria, or whatever. That day is not today, but it could be tomorrow. It could be nearer than we think. And when it does come, it will not be glamorous. It will not be dignified. It will be heartbreaking and soul-crushing as moms and dads refuse to yield and their children starve right before their very eyes. That's soul-crushing. It's not glamorous or dignified. But that's what it's really like. So when your child is hungry... Will you bend the knee to the idols of this world? Or will you hang on? Will you persevere? See, that's what we need to be prepared for. Where in that moment, the only thing we have to cling to is that old rugged cross and the assurances that accompany the symbol. Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, finally we come to this last part, unique commissions. This is promises and commissions, week one. Promises and commissions. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, And you are the light of the world. Salt hinders corruption. It hinders decay. And as the metaphorical salt in the world, the Christian is to hinder the world's corruption. 
Sam Storm says it's impossible to live according to the norms of the kingdom described in these verses in a purely private way. These virtues in isolation from others easily degenerate into self-righteousness. What's he saying? He's saying you can't live by the Beatitudes in a holy huddle. You have to be in the world in order to do them. It's actually pretty unique. There's eight Beatitudes. Four, if you will, are internal. And four are external. Very much like the first four commandments are between, if you will, man and God. And the last six are between man and man. Very similar, fascinating parallel. All the way up to Jesus went up to a mountain and delivered these internal and externals just as Moses went up to the mountain and brought back. Right? It's a neat parallel. What's the point? Blessed are the merciful, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Who are you being merciful toward? Yourself? Who are you aiding in peace with God? Yourself? Who are you being persecuted by in isolation? Yourself? No. They can't be exercised if they aren't exercised in the world, and in fact, in a world that is in need of mercy and who is at war with God, who needs peacemakers, you see? And the same thing goes for the light, right? The light exposes the sin of the world to their own eyes. It brings things to bear. It brings it to their attention. And thereby, as Jude says, as we'll see these verses in a couple of weeks, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others, this is how he says it, by snatching them out of the fire. That's what we're doing as the light, exposing the world's need for Christ as we are snatching them out of the fire. Well, the term beatitude means supreme blessedness. Supreme blessedness. Means, like, it's not just happy, not just you know, joyful. It's like greater than all of these. And truly the life marked by these distinctions and used by way of these commissions is a life that is called more than happy, more than joyful, more than fulfilled. It can only be summarized as supremely blessed. Well, that's an attempt at the Beatitudes if you will, in a flyby. Let's close in prayer, and then Don's going to lead us in a time of corporate prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for your kindness towards us. Thank you for the preservation of your scriptures and um, for the chance, for our uh, privilege to gather together. Think on your word, study your word, think carefully about what you had to say. May you bless the next few weeks as we examine this Sermon on the Mount together, bit by bit, in Christ's name, amen.